Welcome to NSL Unscripted, a national security law podcast, brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. We bring you conversations and hot topics from NSL practitioners today and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to another episode of NSL Unscripted. I am your host, Major Emily Bobbinreath, a student in the 71st graduate course at the U.S. Army's Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, and a future professor in the National Security Department. I've spent the last year concentrating in national security law, writing on the impact of climate change on our national security, as well as focusing on the law applicable to cyberspace and information operations. I also recently had the opportunity to attend the phenomenal Cyber Operations Technical Foundations course hosted by the U.S. Army's Cyber Institute, and I met two outstanding teammates, Brandon Pugh and Major Jessica Dawson, who joined me today. From my studies and observations of the current security environment, data and data privacy seems to be all the rage. So I asked my chair, Colonel Laura West, if I could conduct research and engage with these fine experts on this topic. And it was a resounding yes from Colonel West, obviously. So Brandon and Major Dawson, thank you so much for being here today. Major Dawson is the Information Warfare Research Team Division Chief at the Army Cyber Institute at the United States Military Academy and holds a PhD from Duke University. Her research focused on the digital disruption of social processes, narrative, and privacy. Brandon is the Director of the Cybersecurity and Emerging Threats Team at the R Street Institute in Washington, D.C. He also serves as a judge advocate in the U.S. Army Reserves. I want to briefly add that nothing expressed in this episode should imply any endorsement of R Street Institute, its affiliates, employees, or any of its positions. So today we're just going to have a candid discussion uh, about how data privacy, or perhaps lack thereof, poses a risk to U.S. national security and how NSL law practitioners can better prepare for this threat. So data privacy you know, it may not be something that we typically think of as a national security consideration, much less classify it as a threat. So why is this assumption perhaps misguided? And Brandon, if we could, we could just start with you. Of course. Well, thanks for having me and, and to the entire national security department. Uh, I have to say, I, I love the podcast and uh, I'm quite jealous that you're in Charlottesville and I'm in New Jersey actually <laughs> right now. So um but to your to your point, as a starting point, I, I would say data itself is important. I think it's important to, to remember that. For instance, it's it leads to innovation, new capabilities, but it also enhances current ones like artificial intelligence or AI. But it can be easily misused, and I think that's the concern. So, to a starting point, we do see instances where data is either overcollected or is collected without a person even knowing. But then, fast forwarding, those risks then become how it can be stolen or breached and then how it can be misused even after it's collected. And the challenge is this can be super sensitive information, can be on super sensitive populations like children or members of our military, and it can even be combined to form profiles and individuals. And adversaries see this as a strategic resource. Uh, we've seen clear examples of how it's been used for espionage, influence campaigns, even to make traditional attacks more effective, like in the cyber arena. And I know like uh, Jess is a big fan of this, but her research touches on this, but we even see it making entire profiles on people. So I guess that's all to say that it has tremendous value, but there's also concerns and things that the military as well as the entire country need to be mindful of. Jessica, same question for you. 
Thanks again for having me. Brandon and I have worked together on a couple of papers in the past. And so we're, we're both, you know, clearly a lot of fun at parties when this topic comes up. Um, so I think, you know, this, this question of data as a national security risk, we've sort of tried to move towards this idea collectively as a society that data helps us make rational decisions, right? Well, it's this is what the data say, ergo it's right and it's unbiased, right? Well, Maria Ressa, a reporter, um, uh, Rappler in the Philippines, you know, had this really great comment. She said, data are opinions anchored in code. And just because this is what the data say, you have to actually unpack what else, what is the data representing? So when we code someone as male or female, there's a whole lot of assumptions that go into, you know, those two variables, you know, a one or a zero. And, and so when we think about what the risks are from this, we already have major problems of bias in society. The data that are now being used to build these algorithms are further entrenching these biases. And so, you know, and Wired has been doing just some absolutely phenomenal reporting over the last few years about the biases in data and algorithms. And so when we think about the risks to this, you know, for example, right, one of my one of the books that really opened my eyes to, to this problem set, and I'm going to swear, unfortunately, because it is the literal title of the book, but Chris Wiley's book, Mindful, and he goes how Cambridge Analytica basically went out and bought as much data as they possibly could on individuals, things that you wouldn't think were relevant at all. And then they used it to build profiles and they had, you know, they got access to information on Facebook, which was really, you know, information about you, information about your friends. So it positions you not as just an atomized individual in the data, but as a, as a person inside of this, this social network which means that the influence that they decided to run was probably a lot more effective because it looked like it came from friends and families and it was based in content about you. And all of the political parties are doing this. So this isn't just, you know, Cambridge Analytica worked for the Republicans. Oh gosh, the Republicans are horrible, right? Everybody's doing this. Nike is doing this. You know, beer companies are doing this, right? Our foreign adversaries are doing this. Scam companies are doing this. Right now, if you go to the Department of Veterans Affairs website and sign up for the burn pit uh, registry, you will be uh, routed to ID.me, which is a you know a private company that is doing verification of individuals' identity. Well, first, you know it is the government's job to identify its citizens, not a private company's, right? But now you also can go to Google, and because the Department of Veterans Affairs website has the Google Pixel on it, I can now go into Google and target anyone that has visited the Department of Veterans Affairs website with ads for well for what. Well, if it's to help you get more VA benefits, great. But what if it's to help, you know, guide you towards a scam to defraud you out of your GI bill? What if it's to guide you towards, you know, um, you know, one of these multi-level marketing schemes that, you know, heavily target military spouses, right? So the fact that the Google Pixel is on the Department of Veterans Affairs website enables advertising and targeting towards veterans and towards military personnel. So as we think about so just a very benign, you know, case like that, what else can be done with that? What else can we target people with? Justin Sherman at Duke has done some really, really great research showing, right, there was there's some, some reporting that he's done showing that there have been data brokers that have built lists of people that are, have cognitive decline, right, that are dealing with dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that. And they are on a sucker's list that is then sold to people to target them with more, you know, advertisements meant to defraud them. That's horrible, right? And, and when we think about, you know, what are ways that you use, lose your security clearance? Too much debt, infidelity, all of these things can cause you to lose your security clearance. Well, if I can now sucker you into a high-risk loan, guess what? You're now a security risk. So what I'm hearing 
there's a few things, right? First, I'm hearing sort of, I, I see data as almost a little bit like death by a thousand cuts in the sense that there's bits and pieces of me out there, but they're being gathered and creating, I think, Brandon, you said a profile or like a map maybe of who I am. And what's even scarier is that it's happening in ways I may not be aware or possibly I signed a disclaimer that, you know, none of us read. So I've agreed to this, but have I really? Because I, I have no idea the extent, right, at which this is being seeped through to different uh, organizations. And so, so if we just take a very simple example, if I record myself on YouTube and post it on my account, what are the different ways in which it can go? How could it have potential for national security implications? I mean, something that would seem so innocuous, how is it not? Mary Ebling has this wonderful book called The Afterlives of Data, and she talks about these data selves, these representations of us in the data. And so it is really, it's not just the YouTube video in isolation. If you use Google services, Gmail, you know, Chrome, et cetera, right? They're scooping up everything about you that they can, and they're dumping it into a profile about you. You can actually go in and see what Google has on for, for like what categories do they have you in for marketing, right? You can actually see that, it, but you have to have marketing turned on in order to see that. So because I have mine turned off, I can't actually see where they have me, which is interesting, right? Like they have data on me, but unless I click to turn this button on, I can't see what it is. The other thing that, that Evelyn talks about in her book that was just, you know, I'm pretty jaded about this area, but I was even more horrified is that your medical information is only covered and protected by HIPAA if it is in a covered entity, right? So like if it is in a hospital system, it is protected data. The minute it leaves that hospital system and goes out to say an app, it is no longer protected. So the, the credit bureaus, right? And Google and Facebook and, and Amazon all probably have medical data on you as well as all of your search history, all of your you know purchasing history, et cetera, et cetera. So when we start to think about the completeness of the pictures about us, and we don't have any idea what's in them, we don't have any idea if it's accurate, it gets really, really scary really, really quickly. There is nothing that you can do on the internet that is, quote unquote, not, you know, not innocuous. It's not going it, to, there. It's all, you should assume it's going to be aggregated somewhere and it's going to be used against you. Sashana Zuboff talks about consent washing. Oh, you signed the terms and conditions. Yeah. And you have no rights to object. Again, Ebling talks about you don't have the right to opt out of hospitals doing whatever they want with your data. You are notified of their privacy practices. You are not given the option to consent. Think about that for a second. Some of your most personal private data, you have no say so over what a hospital does with it. Jess brought up a great point on HIPAA. It's actually really timely because uh, just recently Congress actually had a hearing looking at what we call sectoral privacy law, like HIPAA or the GLBA, which is in, covers the finance sector, looks at what they actually cover, because we don't have actually a comprehensive privacy law in the United States, much like other countries, including China, whether they fall, that's a different story, but they actually have one on paper. Uh, but the GDPR in Europe, we don't have an equivalent in the US. So all we have in the US, and I'll elaborate on this later, is these sectoral laws just covering specific sectors, or this growing trend of state laws. And matter of fact, just, just recently, we've just had our seventh state pass a state law. Outside of that, there's no guarantee for privacy or protection in the U.S. with a very few exceptions, which is concerning. Very concerning. I want to shift a little bit now to current events, looking to Russia, Ukraine. How have we seen exploitation of this type of data in that specific conflict? Brandon, we can start with you if you'd like. 
Of course. Yeah. It, unfortunate reality is we have seen this come front and center in Russia. Uh, many people had suspected or known it was possible in the past, but this was one of the earliest publicly accounted times in, in a military setting. Uh, we saw Russia, or at least those affiliated or supporting Russia like that. And, and as NSL pr practitioners, we know that's not always clear, but they were collecting information on specific populations like members of the Ukrainian military to either target them for physical violence or at the very least for disinformation purposes, like sending messages through through various texts saying, give up, lay down your arms, or to spread information on successes that were actually proven later to be false. And how do they do this? Some were done through sophisticated means using malware and other cyber measures, but largely it was done with information that's publicly out there. To Jess's point earlier, a lot of this information just is already available. You can either amass it yourself or you could just buy it from a data broker or as some call third-party collecting entities to call them by their technical name. And the unfortunate reality is this is not limited to Russia. That presents a clear example. But take another one like China. They have a campaign right now to collect as much information they can on their own citizens, on our allies, on American military, and on Americans overall. And that's a major issue. And social media is just one avenue for it. Really, anybody that collects data or, or is amassing it somehow is a source for our adversaries to collect it and use it against us. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we've seen a lot of examples in, in the Ukraine conflict. Um, you know, Ukraine was sending messages home to people's parents. They were sending pictures of their children to people's parents who had been killed, trying to, you know, inform Russians of what was actually going on in the war. You know, that's just the start, right? When we look at, if you go back and you look at, you know, the situations where we had in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, where we had mass casualty events, for example, one event in particular, so Sadr City in 2004, the, the battalion stayed in blackout comms. So when someone's killed in action, the unit goes into what's called blackout to prevent anyone from notifying the family before official means, right? Like that is the goal is we want to make sure that we inform families appropriately. The, the unit stayed in blackout comms for like 10 days because they couldn't find one of the parents. Let's fast forward that to a social media era now when everyone has their phones and we have a mass casualty event. And now you add in the deep fake technology because soldiers are on TikTok and everywhere else. And you think our adversaries aren't gathering up that information. They are. Think about the power of having a prisoner of war saying that they denounce the country, et cetera. Think about the power of, and it doesn't have to be real. It could absolutely be a deep fake, right? Or a cheap fake or what have you, right? Think back to Mogadishu with, with, with airmen being, you know, or, you know, our pilots being dragged to the streets. Right. That was very powerful. And that was before the age of social media. Think about what that would look like now. So the ability to target, the ability to influence, it's only going to get worse. And our systems are not set up to deal with it right now in any way, shape or form. We're, we're constantly playing, you know, catch up. And, and I think it's it's a really dangerous situation that we're in in a lot of ways because we're not prepared for, you know, the, the chaos machine to go into full effect, you know, the next time we go into into conflict. And so. The whole mentality of that's them, this is us, really doesn't apply here. What is happening in Russia, Ukraine, maybe not to the extent of what's happening in China, Brandon, what you said, just in terms of the way that their government is structured and the way they, that they do business, but it certainly is something that, just what I'm hearing you say, that we are facing, we are going to face, and that we are just unprepared to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, to go back to the to the China example, think about who's done the 23andMe or the different genetic testing. There are very compelling reasons for people to want to do that. Those are private companies. 
And those companies can either sell your data or or be hacked and have it stolen. There was an article a couple of months, years, I don't know, time has lost all meaning about prenatal tests, genetic tests that were being, the, the data was being sent back to China. That's on major, like millions and millions of women and prenatal tests went back to China with the genetic data. They've collected massive amounts of genetic data from their weaker population, right? So the surveillance and the tie to, you know, you, you can change, you know, you can change your hair, you can change your name, but you can't change your genetics, at least as far as we know. So the ability to move through the world and not be surveilled is getting much narrower, right? It's, it's not a thing. And, you know, it's fine until you become the character of the day, right? And the minute you become, you know, the main character, then everything you've ever done is open for the whole world. That's not that's not a fun place to be, and it can be very dangerous. Brandon, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, maybe just a, a few things. I think to really underscore the point, this is not an isolated capability. We see this at Russia, Ukraine, but it's happening now in the U.S. Maybe it's not getting as much media attention because we're not currently in conflict. But the fact of the matter is, the U.S. is unfortunately going to be in a future conflict one day, and I think this is going to be more prevalent then. And technology as we know it, it's just expanding so rapidly. The challenges and capabilities we see today are going to be even farther ahead tomorrow. Like take artificial intelligence, this example. Been around for a while, obviously, but it, it just recently become a household name. And the number of people using it on a daily basis is skyrocketed. So I really think it's important to think of like what is being done now? What can we do? Uh, I mentioned earlier efforts by Congress. I am thrilled to see Congress really hone in on this issue. Progress is... is a little slower than I think some would hope, but just for context, last Congress, the 117th Congress, passed a the American Data Privacy and Protection Act out of committee. Um, it would do a lot, but it would really put Americans on notice and empower them to have rights on how their data is collected and used. And that would benefit all Americans, just not members of the military. But I think those in really sensitive populations would most benefit. And I'm also thrilled to see that this is moving beyond just a traditional consumer privacy issue. That's really important. But just recently, coming from the White House, we see data privacy and security get shout outs in the National Cybersecurity Strategy, as well as the annual threat assessment in the intelligence community. So it's really nice to see these issues become more mainstream. And I think two or three takeaways from those two reports, uh, to Jess's point, they flag the health and genetic info being collected by adversaries is a key issue. Uh, we also saw the White House affirmatively call for action on the use transfer and security of personal information, which is good to see that. And third, really drawing attention to the uh, prevalence uh, of new technology and how they're really expanding quicker than we can keep up with and create norms around privacy and security. Yeah, and to sort of ride this small positivity wave, if you will. So data isn't necessarily all bad. We're seeing these moves in the legislature and coming out of the executive in terms of how to protect Americans, but also the Army wants to use data to make our capabilities stronger, more robust. So in fact, Secretary of the Army has defined six objectives to help guide the force to prepare for future competition and conflict. And the second of those objectives aims to ensure that the Army will be more data-centric that we will use more data in order to make us a more efficient and effective force. So my question is, how is the data privacy threat, which is real, how is that distinct from using that data in a more positive way and becoming more data centric? You know, there, it's always good to, to query, you know, how can we use data? Like, what is the data? What data do we have and what can it tell us? But the thing that we're missing in this conversation about data centric is asking the question of why do we have what data that we have? And there's this 
wonderful book, Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Carolyn uh, Caradad Perez. And she basically lays out all of the ways that data is, is collected and designed based on the male default, right? And not to get all pinko commie feminists, but this, this idea that, you know, the male default is the standard and everything else is a deviation from it has serious, serious consequences. And just to use one example that's relative, I think it's well relatively well known, but maybe not. Male heart attack symptoms are, you know, the elephant sitting on your chest, the pain in your left arm. Well, they've said for years, women don't seem to have the same heart attack risk. Well, it turns out that women's heart attack symptoms look nothing like male heart attack symptoms. So we're training doctors to look for X. We're not training doctors to look for Y. Ergo, Y isn't in the data. So we have to it, we have to acknowledge that there's a lot of data and, and a lot of it is very, very biased, not by purpose or design or like, oh, you know, the evil men are trying to exclude the women. But like this idea that like we've just the, the, the default assumptions are not necessarily asking the right questions. So I think going to, you know, more data centric is, is not necessarily a bad thing, but we have to query what data do we have and what is missing in the data that we have. And we have to be deliberate about asking those questions if we want to ensure that the data is going to show us the right answers. No, that, I think that's a great point, Jess. Brandon, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, to, to your question, I think they're distinct, but definitely related. Let me first say, I, I agree that data needs to be a key priority for the military. I was thrilled to see the secretary put that out, as well as leadership fleshing that out afterwards in terms of what that actually means in practice. And there was more to this, but essentially they got it two threads. Empowering uh, leaders with the right in info at the right time, as well as equally as important, leveraging analytics to understand, actually assess the data. Because just having the data, uh, arguably still important, but if you're not actually using it to its fullest ability, it's it's not as uh, not as effective in a military setting. But I think it's important to keep in mind the data's privacy and security risks that come with having that data. And there's a real opportunity for America, as well as our military, to take a leadership role here. That way, we're setting the norms. And right or wrong, so many countries, especially our allied nations, look to the U.S. So I think it's important for us to have a uh, you know, have a vision for privacy and security of data and how it can be effectively used and for us to lead in that space. And then any data we do collect, as well as data that's collected on Americans, we need to make sure is actually safeguarded and that we embrace privacy around it. That way we can have kind of two scenarios. We want a scenario where data is, is used and is embraced and develop new technologies, but equally as important on the other side, we do need to safeguard it and value privacy. To, to build on that just a little bit more, right? You know, military kids go to the doctor because they have insurance. And one of the biggest things that we're seeing as we've transitioned to MHS Genesis is a slowdown of the accessions process because military kids have medical profiles, profile in terms of the, the packet of information on them. So like, yay, the kids have got to go to the doctor and gotten medical care. That's awesome. But now how much of it is serving as a barrier to entry? Because you can see their history and their past. What, that's one of the things that Chris Wiley talks about is if we tie our future selves to our past selves, we can never move on. We will always be changed to who we were. And I think that that is a really, 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 really critical piece as we think about specifically about medical data and about, you know, military kids, for example, right? They're in the system and, and we can now see everything about them for better or for worse. And that may mean, you know, part of our, our challenges with recruiting now are that military kids are being excluded because they have medical data on them. And I, I don't have any evidence for that. And there's been a little bit of reporting on that. It's logical to assume that part of the challenges with recruiting are because of the medical standards, which, oh, by the way, haven't been revisited in decades. And when you said military kids, the other thing that comes to my mind are a lot of who our population is who are serving are young soldiers, right? They're 
young kids, if you will, late teens, early 20s. And that generation of soldiers, they have a prolific social media footprint. We are facing a generation of soldiers who have a strong and open social media presence. And so to bring it from the treetops, which is where we've been, to just a more practical sense, I I wanted to close with your thoughts, both of your thoughts on how NSL practitioners, what role do we play in addressing the threat now? And how can we help the commands that we advise address the threat, especially with the challenge that the majority of their formation is putting out content every single day that may have uh, mission and operational impacts? Jess, we can start with you. Look, I don't think there's a person that's over the age of 40 that says, wow, I really wish social media had existed when I was a kid. I'm pretty sure it's a universal consensus that we are all glad that this stuff did not exist when we were kids because kids do stupid things. Um, That's part of growing. It's part of learning. It's part of, you know, figuring out who you want to become. That's a yay. These kids are all connected to each other. And and I think it's wonderful that, you know, the internet has given the nerdy kids, you know, an ability to find other kids that are into Dungeons and Dragons. Those things are wonderful, but it's also a huge risk for these kids as well, because you go through a stupid phase and you have opinions that, that have changed and the internet is forever. So I think it's, it's a huge risk. The other thing, just to, you know, put a pin, put, put an extra pin in the privacy issues is Google Classroom. Um, Google Classroom is collecting data on all of our children without any consent from the parents, without any restrictions on what can be done with that data. Where is it going and what are they doing with it? We don't know. So as we think about about all of that, right? Yay, good computers in class, makes life easier for teachers, awesome. What are the second and third order effects of it? What data is collected on all of our kids and how is that going to be used against them in the future? Because this data is almost never used for individual benefits. It's always used for companies to exploit and make money um, and and for for commercial for profit. If the data was being used to help people, I don't think anybody would be complaining about this in in, in, in large ways, right? The threat to individuals, the threats to our children to be tied to whoever they were. Like if you do something stupid at 18, yes, there should be consequences. Should it be the rest of your life? I think we have to have a really, really long and hard conversation as a society about what is the blast radius of a tweet, because people have have lost their lives and careers because of, you know, one or two, you know, stupid things online. And I think that's a huge issue. Jess, do you think training maybe help that? I mean, in order to help this this younger generation understand the ripple effect of what they do? Um, well, the minute it becomes personal for someone, they, they, you know, we, we had a situation, a couple, again, time has lost all meaning. This TikTok influencer, you know, made, made some Nazi jokes and he was an army lieutenant and he, thank you for serving. He's now no longer in the army. It's not, those are not good things to do. He became an object lesson in play stupid games, win stupid prizes. I'm, I'm okay with that, right? I'm okay with him losing his career for that. We can do some training, right? But the, the goal is, you know, we, we have to think about how to institutionally respond to this stuff. And, and realistically, we do need to, to start training everyone, not just the younger generation, but across the board of, you know, things that get posted online do get used against you. It's a big problem. Training is just one piece of it. Um, and and I, I think we've got a big, big, you know, we, we have a societal shift on our hands. We have to figure out how to both embrace it and rein in some of the problems. Brandon, your thoughts? Yeah, just quickly follow up on a point Jess made and then share some thoughts to your question. I would say just to underscore, maybe I I try to convey this in my testimony in Congress in, I guess, February. It's hard to keep track of time. But I just want to underscore that here, too, is that a lot of these privacy and security threats around data that we've mentioned are not isolated to just like big tech companies. I know a lot of times they're getting the attention because... Everybody really seems right or wrong doesn't has some issue with big tech for different reasons. But I would say we've seen companies of all sizes be violators and concerns here. Matter of fact, some of our smallest data brokers 
are actually only a handful of companies, yet they collect and harvest information on millions and millions of Americans that is super sensitive. So like I, I always try to tell people, like when we're thinking of a solution here, whether it's legislation, regulation, or just good action by like the federal government, we need to make sure we're addressing it all uh, size companies. But to your point directly, I think this whole conversation really brings me back to why I think national security law is one of the coolest areas to practice in the military, if not the coolest, because there's a massive opportunity to truly be a counselor and an advisor to a commander in decision making here, because there's not clear answers always. And as this technology and space evolves, it even becomes more difficult. And there's an opportunity to apply policy knowledge here because we've talked about policy and action by legislatures and by other branches outside of DOD. That may seem irrelevant, but cyber and national security law has such a huge policy nexus and implications with other federal agencies. And that's really key as a practitioner to keep that in mind. You may not be the one directly advising or interacting with the Department of State, but at some chain and, and some person in your chain of command is. So that's important to keep in mind. Um, so I would say the big issue, though, is tech is only going to expand and so is data usage. So I think it's important to personally be aware and take proactive steps. So having conversations like these to to bring these issues to light is really important because I think the average person, they understand their data is out there that could be misused, but making it tangible and providing concrete examples is not often done. And as a practitioner, it's super important to stay up to date on policy uh, measures being put out by DOD and then individual services. Like for instance, when there's a TikTok ban, making sure that your commander is aware of that and is truly implemented in the formation is key. And TikTok gets a lot of attention, but that's just, I think the latest um, concern, those concerns are only, only going to come up. So I think it's really important to stay on top of the, the policy landscape so you can advise a, a commander. Well, with that, Brandon, Jessica, I think it's about time to wrap up. Any final comments from either of you before we end today's session? So I think Brandon hit the nail on the head that this requires policy. We can educate individuals, but you know, I'm someone that cares about this and I can't opt out of everything. I don't know where all my data is. We, we like to say we, we need to educate people, but realistically, this requires systemic intervention. This requires policy protections at the national level because it is too big for any one person to really opt out of. And I think you know one of the things that I would love to see is for a requirement for any product to be able to be operated without an app and without a Wi-Fi connection. So if I want to, you know, have a security camera on my home, I need to be able to operate it on a standalone basis that I can still use it without the information being out there on the internet. Because so much of these devices are coming now with built-in subscriptions and connections. So we need systemic solutions to this, not individual effort. Um, it's, it's not sufficient just to, to focus on individuals, I think. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think I'm taking a broader solution. I think that's important for key leaders in the Department of Defense to be mindful of as well. Like, yes, there is a role for the executive branch or that being the White House, I should say, in Congress. But there is an immediate and next steps that DOD can take uh, to keep individual soldiers and members of the military safe, but then also more structural measures that can be taken internally without broader, maybe not as ideal of a solution, but it's it's probably arguably better than none. So just that, I think that's my final point. I Always happy a resource in these matters and not to shamelessly promote some of our past work, but Jess and I did a, I guess it was a defense news article maybe last year or so. So I think that kind of expands upon some of these, especially Ukraine interests, if, if people are interested in that. Thank you both so much for lending your time and expertise in this area. That is all the time we have for today. So for our listeners, stay tuned for more episodes for NSL Unscripted from the National Security Law Department at TJAG's List. Out. This episode of NSL Unscripted was brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. 
The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components, the Department of the Army, or the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. Our department also produces the Operational Law Handbook, accessible online. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and look forward to future episodes for NSL practitioners. Thank you.